got one goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, welcome to another episode of Golf Drinking and Life. My name is Colin McKern. I'm a PGA professional and a Callaway staff member here in Mobile, Alabama. I'm here with my co-host, my brother, Corey McKern, who is a professional opera singer and a professor at the University of West Florida in Pensacola, Florida. Big core. Hey, how's it going? Weather's been delightful. We've got, uh, we, are, we are on the eve of the 2022 Masters and lots of big news yesterday in the golf world. I think there were some Elvis sightings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there definitely were. So if if that's not a cautionary tale of of not wanting to be famous, I think yesterday's a good example of that. I mean, they were literally tracking Tiger Woods' plane on Twitter. Like with graphics and stuff. Yeah, so for those who don't know Tiger Woods, we've had a like it's like Bigfoot has been sighted at Augusta National. So Tiger flew into Augusta. The Masters is next week. So they think he's testing the waters to see if he's fit enough to play. So, yeah, so Tiger Woods flew to Augusta yesterday, was on the grounds, and and uh, apparently played a practice round with his son, Charlie, and Justin Thomas. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not unusual for players to get to the Masters early. I know Phil used to get there a full week early. I think Tiger Woods sometimes, too. So players do start showing up to Augusta um, um, this week even though the Masters doesn't officially start till next week. Um, but that was a lot of news yesterday, be it that Tiger Woods is still on the um, the list of past champions that, that may be playing. He has not taken himself off that list yet. So, um, you know, my, my thing about this is, for somebody who's a year, a year away from a pretty bad broken leg, um, Augusta is a very, very hilly golf course. So, um, you know, golf aside, just the walking part to walk, you know, let's just say he only plays nine holes a couple of days or whatever. And his practice rounds leading in to walk 72 holes, of course, is a big, uh, is, is a big deal. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. Also, I've thought a lot about this with Tiger recently because, uh, what was the na- guy? The name of the guy about twenty years ago who petitioned the PGA Tour to let him use a cart? That was Casey Martin. Casey Martin. So he had had he had a bad leg, something about blood flow, and one was you know exterior, the bottom half of his right leg or whatever, and so he could play golf fine, but he couldn't. The rigors of walking for eighteen holes were what he had trouble with, and. That was an interesting moment in the PGA Tour because a lot of those old veterans came out verbally against this young guy, Jack Nicklaus included. And uh, the the whole debate revolved around then that walking is a part of the game. And other people, are, you know, of course, are like, no, uh, hitting the golf ball is the important part of the game. The walking, you know, I don't know. When golf was invented, golf carts weren't invented. So it's hard to say what the founders of golf, they'd probably been like, why is everyone walking? We invented golf carts. It's so hilly here. Well, why is everyone walking? Also a side note on Casey Martin, he has recently had that leg removed. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. So for anybody out there who thought that Casey Martin, that was kind of that, that wasn't realistic, that his leg problem wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Turns out it was, but man, we would all, if, if, 
what do you think the fans would say if Tiger said, well, I can play, but I would have to ride a cart? I mean, we'd all be like, please, yeah, of course. Play. Well, yes. Um, yeah, that's um, yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up there. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's kind of a tragic story, obviously, that Casey had his um, leg removed and he, he had a real issue – you know, it's always a slippery slope, I guess, in, in a professional sports league when you start uh, accommodations, so to speak. So, you know, that's not quite the uh, the conversation I necessarily want to get into today. But, um, you know, on the Champions Tour, the, these guys have the option to ride. They They don't in some of the Champions Tour majors, but they do on a weekly basis. Yeah, um, Champions Tour is a little bit of a different ball game in that it's three day tournaments with no cuts, uh, a lot like this Liv Golf Invitational Series that Norman's proposing. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but all the news yesterday about Tiger being in Augusta, I haven't heard. I, I've searched Twitter and the social media outlets this morning, and I haven't really heard any anything further about that. Um, so, but, but it's fun news. I, I think that, you know, Tiger's always been very upfront about he's not playing in a golf tournament unless he expects to be able to win the golf tournament. I think at Tiger's yeah. age now being 46 years old, I believe he's about to turn 47 if he hasn't already. I, I think that at some point that, that expectation has to come down somewhat. <laughs> I was just about to say like Tiger Woods like crawling, dragging his leg behind him, like, I'll still win, I tell you. Like, well, all right, you can just play now. You know, you know, Lawrence, my boss, always brings up a point. If if I only signed up for golf tournaments, I thought I could win. I'd be very limited of what I would sign up for. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, I've I've played in several U.S. Open qualifyings and I made it through the first stage of the U.S. Open qualifying. Didn't mean necessarily that I felt like I was, could win the U.S. Open, but that thought's always in there. I've never teed it up in a golf tournament and not thought some outside chance that I could win. And yeah. I think Tiger needs to embrace that a little bit. If Tiger played in the Masters this next week and made the cut, that would be a humongous win. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean? At his age and with the injuries he's had, and it's still got to be in the back of his head that, hey, you know, maybe I'm not 100%. Maybe I can't win, but maybe, just maybe, I can catch lightning in a bottle for one week. All golfers have that little bit of optimist in them. You know, I don't yeah. know any golfer. Go- golfers are, are very um, self, you, you know, we're, we are hard on ourselves. So exteriorly, we will talk about how bad we're going to play. But inside of all of us, before we step to that first tee, we still have the hope that this could be the best round we've ever played. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and somewhere course. in there, Tiger has that as well. I mean, Tiger has to think that I don't have to be 100% to beat all these guys that there is some version of this where I could limp this around and still win this thing. Well, he has he, to think that in his mind. He, he, yeah, I just I mean, know what kind of athlete he is. He has to think that 80% of Tiger could, could win that tournament. Well, I'm sure his, you know, since he made those comments about, uh, you know, I only uh, teed up, if I think I can win a lot of water's been under the bridge since then. Who in the world knows what he thinks now? Maybe he's just grateful to, be at Augusta and get, even get a, a shot to play. Um, things change pretty quickly, I, I imagine, when you're lying in a hospital bed, not even knowing if you'll be able to walk fully again. Then his attitude must be different after all the things he's gone through. Whether he says it publicly or not, I'm sure uh, his attitude is somewhat different. And I'm quite frankly, 
I don't think there's ever there has never been a major sports figure in history that has competed at such a high level that has dealt with so many controversies and personal and public difficulties. So Tiger is doing what Tiger does. He's still in rarefied air. He's still like one of the most dominant athletes in the world who has very publicly gone through all of this and is still, you know, he's become something different. He's like a cult hero now um, where we admired him for his play for so long. Now, in some ways we admire him for his perseverance, you know? Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. He is, he continues, you know, throughout his career, he has always exceeded what we expected even from him. And I I think he continues to do that through all this adversity that he's had. And and I think that, you know, one of the things I've heard that his new goal is obviously Jack Nicholas won the masters, the oldest masters winner at age 46. Well, Tiger is about to turn 47 and his new goal is to win the masters at 47 or later to break yet another one of Jack's records. Yeah. Um, and be the oldest Masters champion. So it's good that he can reshuffle his 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 priorities. And obviously, if he were to win the Masters again, that puts him one closer to Jack Nichols Nicholas's totals uh, total majors, uh, which is eighteen professional majors. I think Tiger's sitting on fifteen. Yeah, that's right. So um, I, you know, that's probably that's probably off the off the radar for him to catch Jack, but who knows with him? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're talking realistically, the guys who I've talked to, I talked to Blackburn earlier this week. Um, he says that the word is that Tiger's major debut will be at the British open. Cause it's at St. Andrews this year, which is flat and it's an easy walk. You know, we, we'll see what happens. Like, like I said, Augusta is a, is extremely difficult golf course to walk. It, it's extremely difficult just to walk as a spectator, um, let alone doing it, you know, six out of seven days as a tournament competitor. Now saying that Tiger doesn't have to play the practice rounds the two days before the tournament or the three days before the tournament. He could play a couple times this weekend and give himself two or three days rest before Thursday. Obviously he knows the course well enough. Uh so I have two things to say. One is I read a book once from the seventies called iron John by a guy named Robert Bly. And it's some sort of weird seventies allegory on manhood, which is exactly what you think it is. <laughs> but in there, he, he comes up with this theory. Did he wear old spice? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a mustache pipe and old spice. Um, in this book, in this allegory, he sort of, he comes up with this theory that very successful men, will go through a period that he calls being in the ashes and it's kind of a rebirth. And at first I was like, Oh, that's utter nonsense. But then I started thinking all of the major successful athletes and in some ways performers that, you know, have a period, a weird period. Like Michael Jordan was the most famous athlete in the world and then quit and went and played minor league baseball and then came back. Right. Right. Um, Lance Armstrong went through that, although he never came back. And Tiger's dealing with that. Like this period, like Tiger was, had everything, you know, the, the balls, the world by the balls. Right. And then went from that to absolute zero. And so just him just being where he is, is 
it just adds to his mythology. I mean, I don't want to talk about Tiger Woods like I'm talking about him like he's a superhero. But if you're our age, um, we're talking about him like people talked about Babe Ruth. You know, you had to be there to see it, to experience it. Um, and and really shaped probably a lot of our young opinions of golf. I mean, not young. I mean, I was 18, you were 21 when Tiger, uh, maybe a little older, but, you know, that's when he came on tour. Um, so just interesting, an interesting story. In, in a way, a Shakespearean character, Tiger Woods. Well, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, Tiger completely changed the game of golf period. He changed the purses on tour, but more importantly, he changed the way players prepare to be good players at every level of the game from junior golf to college golf to professional golf. And there's not that many athletes that you can talk about. I mean, there's no other athlete that, that I know that you talk about that changed the way junior basketball is played. Right. The way junior baseball is played. Like Tiger changed it all. I mean, he changed the way athletes prepare their bodies for golf. He 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 just changed everything. And on top of that, he made the purses go completely um out of sight for these guys, which needed to be done because golf as a professional sports league needed to catch up with some of the other professional sports leagues, and it has because of him. Yeah, that's now, right. Now maybe it would have caught up eventually. I don't know, but Tiger certainly, um, certainly sped up that process. And w- when you look at the purses and the career earnings, obviously some of that's due to inflation. But there's more to it than than inflation working there because the numbers. When you look at the numbers from the '90s to then when Tiger gets on board, the the, the numbers just go out of sight. So yes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty impressive. So let's do a little housekeeping here, Corey. I want to continue to thank the listeners. We are now in 25 countries and over 450 cities. Please continue to share and spread the word. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Colin McKern. You can email the show golftrinkinglife at gmail.com. To thank the people who have shared their personal stories and struggles, um, occasionally we'll get Facebook messages and emails. Um, I, I've got to mention, we forgot to mention this on the last show that, uh, a, um, one of my high school teammates who was quite, a, I, I think he was your age, wasn't he, Corey, Jeremy? Yeah, we played, uh, middle school golf and then he was good. He was always good. Yeah. So I guess when I was a senior, he played on the golf team and, and played on our starting five. So he, he reached out to the show and apparently he is the uh, he may be responsible for the mystery listener from Milford, Connecticut, because that's apparently in his sales territory. So it Which, wasn't those, those don't remember. That's where Dan Patrick's based. And we were convinced that Dan Patrick was in his giant bubble bath listening to uh, golf drinking in life before his uh, own radio show. So now maybe we're not correct on that. Correct. Until we finally pissed him off and he quit listening to us. Yeah. I'm but still going with that story. It makes a better story. Yeah. But anyway, it was nice to hear from Jeremy and, uh, and, and it's, it's always nice to hear from people who are listening to the show, all 10 of them. Yeah, that's right. Um, new episodes are out every Thursday morning. You can follow us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, basically wherever you get your podcast from. If you are new to the podcast, I encourage you to start with episode one and two from season one. Basically sets up the reason why we started this podcast and um, and continue to do said podcast. 
So Corey, I've rolled around uh, earlier this week was uh, 18 months. Yeah. 18 months right. sober now, for those of you who haven't listened before. Um, so we're getting close to two years. We can finally get out of baby talk here shortly. <laughs> if I don't go crazy and drink a 12-pack of White Claw. Yeah, that'd be weird. Which seems to be all the rage now. Well, I think they think it's going to make them skinny. And guess what, <laughs> gentlemen? It's not. You know? so, it's funny how those trends kind of happen, and then people look back and are like, Oh, what were we thinking? Like they're going to look back at that in 10 years and say, why in the world was I drinking that nasty seltzer water? I know it's also, it's, it's not, it seems so trendy. Like, Oh, it's, it's refreshing and makes me drunk. This is amazing. Um, but it's just malt liquor. Like, yeah, it tastes it's like malt. It's like malty and ugh, it's, it's like a club soda wine cooler is how I picture it. Yeah. Yeah. So another another cautionary tale for people that are going to look back and say, what was I thinking? I know mustaches are making a little bit of a comeback, and it's almost kind of a comedic type of thing for the people who are wearing them, and they're, they're, they're coming in on tour a little bit. I'm, I'm just going to caution you right now. You're going to look back and just cringe at those pictures, people. Don't do the mustache. I've had a couple of occasions, like a few years ago, I sang the title. Oh, I bet you have, gentlemen, Jim. <laughs> Title role in Don Giovanni, which is the the greatest lover in the history of the world. So it, it should have been stretch. easy for you to play. No, yeah, that should have been, like, been like a duck in water for you. <laughs> to be honest, you know when they think they were like, let's get the uh, the most charming, sexiest man in the world. Oh no, he's busy. Well, uh, what, yeah, what had happened? Brad Pitt was already booked, so then yeah, you were... so they got McCurd. Um, but at that time I was in incredible shape and I had to grow a mustache for the show. And I got to say, uh, people like the vibe. I think you got to be in good shape though. At least that's uh, what they said to your face. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have a, two questions. One, I wanted to, uh, briefly wrap up the Augusta talk because I have sung with Augusta Opera, the now defunct Augusta Opera in Augusta, Georgia. Used to be a really amazing conductor named Mark Flint that had gone through his own um, addiction issues. He's he's passed away since then. He was an older gentleman. Um, but he ran that company. And so no offense to the great people of Augusta, it was not the world's most amazing opera company, but he was an amazing guy, an amazing conductor and uh, fantastic to work for. But I, I always found Augusta, the community, to be quite interesting um, because it's it's not what you think of. It's a small kind of southern town, and the area around Augusta National is looks like any other sort of sprawling suburban chain restaurant area. And what I wanted to ask about, I've never been inside the gates. Usually when, I, when I'm singing somewhere, you know, I've talked about this before on the show, I have generally someone on the board as a member of whatever country club is nearby, which, so I've played a lot of great golf courses, but there was not even a chance I was going to get on Augusta national. You know, I kind of inquired and people just laughed, but physically Augusta national doesn't look anything like the rest of Augusta. Is it, is it all just seem like totally man made and crafted Were all those Hills there or did they drag in dirt? Like I don't remember Augusta being the town being particularly hilly. No, I, I I think that 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 particular section of Augusta is is kind of hilly, but you're right. The main the main road right outside the the gates of Augusta, which I forget what that's called now, and I shouldn't 
Do you know offhand? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, it's kind of flat. It reminds me of Airport Boulevard and Mobile. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the you're right. There's a lot of chain businesses, and it's it's not the greatest looking part of town. I mean, it's not a terrible part of town, but it's certainly not a ritzy area. Um, and then you have Augusta, which is is basically this piece of property that is that is in the center of it. And other than the fact that you'll see fences and stuff like that, you can see the entrance a little bit as you drive by there. Um, it is w- once you get in the gates, you, you, you can't see any of the outside. So, no, the hills do not look contrived. I mean, I think that land was built when they built that at the time they built it, they didn't have the ability to easily um, create something like that. So they created it on the natural land that was there. Now it, since then it has been twisted and turned and um, the the agronomy, meaning the core, the way they take care of the grass there and everything is what eventually set Augusta apart from everywhere else. They were on the front end of golf course innovation on on getting the golf course and the grasses so manicured and fast that became their thing. And I mean, there is not a blade of grass out of place there. I don't care if it's around a lake or around anywhere. I mean, there's just nothing is, um, it's amazing because it's almost like, well, it's almost like it's artificial. It's, it's so good. You know, they, they have an unlimited budget and it's just w- w- what they do to it's amazing. And the f- first time I ever went was, and this is kind of good to bring up because we also need to talk about the final four today. And and this is a great time of year because this weekend you you have the final four, you have the championship game on Monday night, which Monday basically starts masters week and they'll CBS as they run the championship game Monday night, will start running their masters commercials with Jim Nance's voice and all that. And when I was a freshman in college in 1991, so I guess that would have been 1992, the spring of 1992, we were sitting in our dorm room watching the championship basketball game and a commercial came on for the Masters. And we're in there with about five or six of the older guys and somebody said, hey, we ought to load up in the car and go to Augusta tonight. Back then, you could get into the practice rounds by just showing up to the gate on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, and you paid like $15, and they gave you this sticker that you put on yourself, and you get in and walk around all day. I want to say it was like 10 bucks for Monday, $15 for Tuesday, and $20 for Wednesday. And so we, we literally left at like 11 o'clock at night and drove six and a half hours to Augusta, walked around all day. And as college kids do, got in the car and drove all the way back to Mobile, um, you know, brushing wow. our teeth and hardies and that kind of thing. But I can remember walking in. The thing about Augusta is the buildup is super. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of buildup, obviously, talking about Augusta, all the talking that I've just done about Augusta. It's the one place that I've been that exceeds what your imagination of it is. You know how most yeah, things yeah. you build it up in your head and it's a little bit of a letdown. You get there. Ah, it ain't that great. You know, I've played some courses that are, but it's not, it's better. It's better than you can possibly imagine it to be. It is. I don't care how many times you've watched it on TV until you go there. You cannot appreciate how undulating that property is and how hilly that golf course is. 
It's absolutely amazing. And I can remember when we got there, it was raining just a little bit. And so the fairways were wet. And this was back when they used to cut all of the grass fairway length from tree line to tree line. They now have a, I wouldn't call it a rough, but they now have a rough cut that's probably about the length of most of our fairways. But um, but back then it was fairway cut all the way tree line to tree line. As we walked down the hill on number one, it was a little bit wet. One of our guys slipped and slid about 20 yards down the hill. Wow. that It was like walking on ice. That's how nice it was. Yeah. So um, it, it's, it's an amazing place. Um, so I would um, tell all of our listeners, you can go on masters.com and fill out an application for tickets every year. They open up the applications around June. You create an account the way they do tickets. Now for all seven days of the masters is by lottery. It used to be only the practice rounds were lottery and you had to literally have the um, tournament Thursday through Sunday tickets willed to you. Um, But now it's all seven days are open for lottery. And so you can fill out on there as you fill it out. You say, oh, I want two for Monday. I want whatever. And you hope you get something. Um, Usually you don't. I fill them out every year. I think one time I got two tickets. But anybody who wants to go to Augusta, that's the way to do it. Um, I think that if you get Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I'm not sure about this, that once you get those, possibly you have the option to continue those. Maybe that's not the case on that. I'm not sure. I think when I got them, I got them for the practice round. I can get in any day with my PGA badge, any of the seven days. So that's a nice perk for being a PGA member. That's a year-to-year invitation from Augusta, and they continue to invite us to come. So that's that's nice. But – I would like to go there with you sometime, and it's not an easy ticket to get. One of the reasons why it's not an easy ticket to get is the players playing in the Masters get six tickets per day Uh, to to hand out to their family or friends or whoever they want. That's not very many. (laughs) You think about there's 80 players in the Masters, and they get six tickets a day. So it's not an easy ticket to come by. It's not as easy as just even though I have a few contacts on tour – Whenever you try to contact them, Heath Slocum did get me a ticket for one of my members one year, but this that was about the third or fourth time he had played. And so the novelty had worn off a little bit. He said the first time that he played at Augusta, it was a little bit hectic because all his family and friends wanted to come and he rented two houses and it cost him a fortune. And, you know, it, basically what players do is they they buy tickets from other players and other places to, to help get the, all the people they want in, but they're paying full price for them too. And it's not a matter of buying them from Augusta. If, I mean, if you don't get them from the lottery, you, you have to buy them from other sources. I would caution people on doing that. Um, theoretically, if Augusta catches you buying tickets from a place you're not supposed to be buying them from, you'll be banned. So they're, they're pretty strict on that. And they literally work. I mean, in a fever pitch, all those, they, they have a strategy for the azaleas to bloom, you know, um, they can speed that up or slow it down. I can't remember the technology they use. Um, they've done everything. I've heard stories of them, um, putting, you know, plastic bags over the azaleas to delay the, um, to delay them from blooming or putting ice on them and stuff like that to make sure they bloom that particular week. They don't have complete control of that as sometimes they are better than others, but they, they, they have pretty good control of it. It's, it's pretty amazing. All the, 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 um, the, 
things they go through in order to, to make that week perfect. Um, just little things like the uh, if you buy a sandwich there, it's in a it's in a green plastic cellophane bag. I guess that way, if you drop it, first of all, if you drop it, somebody's going to scurry down from a tree and pick it up. They're going to repel down from a tree and stab <laughs> it and pick it up. But it's green just in case it stays on the ground for five minutes so nobody can see it. Right. Uh, just little things like that. It's pretty amazing. Also, the fact that when you go through the concessions there, the prices are extremely affordable, unlike any other sporting event. And um, there are no names on anything. If you get a domestic beer, the the cup says domestic beer. Oh, interesting. Or you get Diet Cola or Cola. It's huh. it doesn't say Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi. The only things that have oh, because they, they, they don't do, have any sponsors. Correct. They do have some um candy bars and whatnot. I think they have Snickers and stuff like that. And I guess they yeah, I mean seemingly you could get master Snickers wrappers, couldn't you? But they don't. I have seen some but like potato chips are all masters bags and uh it's it's it's, it's pretty neat the way they the, the way they do things. So if you have not been, I encourage you to go on masters.com and fill out the the um, practice round slash tournament round lottery things. Don't get your hopes up. It's still difficult to win, but it happens. People get them. So. You know, it's funny. Based on the last 10 minutes of this conversation, I see why people think golf is elitist. <laughs> they cut the, the grass with scissors made out of diamonds, and they, they put ice in the azaleas and all of the, they, they unwrap each speaker's bar and wrap it in green. Uh, just, yeah, there is a war going on in Ukraine. <laughs> um, by the way, breaking news, Dad, uh, James McKern, our father, who has been a guest on this show before, literally just texted me and said, wonder if they would let Tiger use a cart in the Masters. <laughs> Does he have, like, a microphone on us or something? we got to bring like, him back on. Like, uh, this every- is, uh, it's funny that we were just talking about that. So, yeah. yeah, no, Dad, they're not going to let him take a cart in the Masters. But, but that was funny that we were just talking about that. Yeah, seriously. So, uh, Corey, weather's getting good. Springtime. Um, pollen is awful here, but that's just part of what you put up with. But we have had a long span for us with basically very low humidity. Yeah, even, in, been, the, even uh, in the spring and fall for us, even when we get cool days, usually the humidity is still not great. But it's been very dry lately and, and nice. Yeah, it's been perfect. And this is really the time of year historically even as a kid and it was tied into golf actually um i loved march for a couple reasons it was our birthday is around that time and when we were growing up as we talked about last week it's always spring break when we were kids and birthday and then the weather's getting nice so typically you know we would hook up with our dad on spring break and go to the beach maybe and play golf and so march is when it starts getting warm and the one thing I could never, ever get used to living at first in Bloomington, Indiana, and then New York, and then singing in the spring in places like Milwaukee or Detroit, is in March, it's springtime now. Like, you might get a cold snap at night, but I if it snowed the first week of May in New York, I would lose my mind. I just couldn't. I was like, this, it's over. This is spring. And... uh so while we're all suffering in July from the heat, this is what we we have earned uh, March. It's beautiful. The, the nice thing about it being hot here, if you can cope with the heat, you got a lot of time to play golf. Yeah. 
You got a lot of time to play golf and drink. Oh, wait. That's right. Play golf and drink. Um, so you, it's funny, the point that you brought up in last week's show or either the show before about Mickelson and his gambling woes. Yeah. So apparently there is now, and I, I'm assuming the other one was on the radar. It just, people weren't talking about it yet, but there are apparently two books coming out about Mickelson in May. And one of them is, is the one by the uh, reporter in which he made these comments about the Saudi golf league and about the tour that got him in trouble. The obnoxious greed comment right. about the tour. And that's the one we all know about by Al- Alan Shipnick. Um, but the, apparently there's another one coming out um, that has something to do with what you had brought up with that check that was yeah. discovered when that guy was arrested and all that. Yes. And apparently, I think there's a lot of stuff in this book that Phil Mickelson doesn't want to come out. Yeah. And it's becoming more obvious that Phil Mickelson has probably been suspended by the tour. Yes, that appears to be so. For his comments. Because for him not to play in the Players' Championship with the highest purse for a PGA Tour event ever is odd. Yeah, especially being the defending PGA champion, and that now for him to not be in, not playing in the Masters is extremely odd. So something's going on there. And if you look at his apology, although I I didn't really like his apology because he immediately was giving excuses as to why he was giving said apology, which is is not really a great way to apologize. But he talks about taking time off to. Um, I can't remember the words he used, but to better himself, it was something beyond just making a few poor comments. Yeah. And I think he's preparing whether, I don't know who he's preparing, whether he's preparing the fans or his family or whoever for whatever information is going to come out in this book. Now, I don't know what said information is. And if Phil Mickelson gambles a hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever, or $500,000 a year, I I don't know that that really matters. He has plenty of money. Maybe, maybe his wife will be mad at him. Maybe she won't. I think they're probably doing fine. Um, If he owes the Saudis a hundred million dollars for said gambling debts, that's probably not a good thing. Well, I, you know, just, I mean, the the life portion of this story is all those celebrities with that kind of level of competition and that lifestyle of travel. And clearly, um, you know, I know from my own career that uh, it's not normal. The amount of adrenaline and cortisol and energy pumping through your body when you step on stage for uh two or 3000 people, it can't really be simulated in another way. And so it's not uncommon. You know, you finish a show and what do you do? You go have a few drinks with friends, you stay up late, you know, um, if you are in a town, you might go to a casino. Like it's just though a guy like Phil Mickelson is, I mean, you just cannot, I, I can't even certainly relate to that level of, success and i said that like there is a possibility i could like you know even i can't relate to phil mickelson taking a private jet to uh augusta and winning right 
Um, no, I definitely cannot relate to that. But those guys, Michael Jordan, Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, with all of the uh, women he was involved with, you know, it's just some kind of extension of this competitive spirit and this chasing this adrenaline, I think. And so uh, I think it gets a lot of them in trouble. I mean, I think Phil is probably he's played this wholesome character on tour, but clearly that's not his M.O., uh, big high level gambler. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, something about his personal life comes out. Um, and so he'll just have to weather it like everyone else did, you know? Well, the thing about gambling is this. So for, so when gambling becomes an addictive thing or for gambling to become an inter, of entertainment value to somebody, typically it has to be for an amount that will get you excited. Correct. Yes, that's right. So if 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 you're playing twenty five cent blackjack, that's not really going to keep your attention very long, is it? No. But if yeah. you play twenty five dollars a hand, that's going to keep your attention pretty good for us. Well, but you know, but, but twenty five dollars a hand blackjack for Phil Mickelson is not going to keep his attention very often. Yeah, that's right. So what what level keeps his attention? Is it a hundred thousand a hand? Is it ten thousand a hand? What you know, so we, I, you never know the the amounts of money that are being thrown out there that would look for us normal people who don't have money would would seem egregious. Well, the other, you know, the thing about gambling that is interesting is I think it has less to do with the success of winning than saving yourself from doom. Like you have to put it you. In order for gambling to be exciting, it's exciting because you're risking so much that you're actually potentially causing yourself harm, and then you're saving yourself from it. Correct. You know, you know if Correct. you win because you've now bet your mortgage payment, and then you win that, that's why the state, oh, my God, I almost lost my house, and now I have twice the amount of money. This is amazing. And, and people that have gambling addictions, I mean, it's all been uh, proven, and I want to kind of transition this into some questions about alcoholism, but you become addicted because physically the hormones and chemicals released in your brain while you're doing that activity become physically, you can't replicate those feelings anywhere else after a certain amount of time. So in order to try to get that same buzz of like adrenaline excitement, you keep having to up the stakes. Um, And then that's when you get yourself in trouble. And typically like we talked about, you start, upping your bets, then that means upping your losing, which means you have to bet more to try to get it back. And, and, you know, like you mentioned last week, then you have one day where you go to a table and put $300 down and turn it into 4,000. And so that's the ride I imagine. Um, But do you, you, you know, Right. Well, and it even works to a point to where if you start playing at a certain level of a hand, even if you're losing or winning, let's say for me, I start playing a hundred dollars a hand and then I, 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 whatever, I back it down and go to a $25 hand table. Even if I start winning in that $25 a hand table, I'm going to start calculating what I've lost because I didn't start at a hundred dollar a hand table. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's how dumb gambling can be in your mind. So there's all yeah, kinds yeah. of hurdles over that. And I can't imagine, I'm not saying this is the case with Phil. I'm sure there are people out there with plenty of money that get nervous playing $25 a hand. But I can't imagine if he's playing it for the rush, what kind of money. And and I don't know that Phil's ever played a hand of blackjack. We're using this as an example. 
I yeah. can't imagine the economy, the, the amounts of money that it must take to get said rush. Right. You know? So my, yeah. And my next question sort of relating to Phil and moving on beyond that is there are theories. There's a guy named Gabor Mate. I think I've mentioned him before and his whole theory around addiction is that it's, it's really to cover trauma and that could be big trauma, small trauma, something either in your life, your childhood that is painful. You don't want to deal with. And so you start sort of drinking to cope with that or to suppress that. And then eventually, you know, spirals worse and worse. Do you think that you start drinking for those kind of reasons or do you think that you could be just, I mean, I'm sure it's both, but maybe even specifically in your case, are you just a perfectly healthy person and then you start drinking and then your life goes to shit versus, you know, I had a few things I was trying to forget. So I'm drinking and then it got worse and worse. Or I just created my own problems because I started drinking. What's your opinion on? Um, I think it's a combination, actually. And, and I think it's interesting the further I get away from this and now that I'm almost two years sober. And so I'll use an example of something me and you have been dealing with with myself over the last few months for sure. But is, is and, and we make fun of it mostly and it is funny to a point, but is my level of anxiety yeah. over little things. Um, and my level of anxiety over little things can be through the roof now. So as I look back in retrospect and I and I try to decipher all of this, I, I don't know if the anxiety now is because I'm almost two years sober and and because my mind's gone through such a chemical change that the anxiety is because of that, or if that anxiety was already always there and that I found on that the drinking kept that anxiety down. Yeah. Now, at some point, the drinking caused its own amount of huge anxiety, obviously. Sure. But I think that there was a sweet spot in my mind there for a while where the drinking controlled the anxiety. Before yeah. it became yeah. a problem and before it certainly before it became a physical problem, but before it became a problem anyway, there was some kind of, you know, it's my day off. I'm not playing golf. You start drinking at lunch, you pretty much got no worries the rest of the day, do you? Or none yeah, that you're right. going to give any credence to. Um, I think it can start like that. So, I, yes, I, I, I think it's a combination of those things, and I don't know which one was the driver of it. But as I look back now and I watch my anxiety, and, and, I, and I work, I do things to level out my anxiety, and I have good days and bad days, and... But but it's a lot of me talking myself off of the ledge kind of thing over stupid thing. Mostly I like to focus on your problems on this podcast um, and play the gregarious sidekick. But I've dealt with my own issues with anxiety, um, in particularly if about three years ago I was really in a – I was struggling badly. Anxiety and depression and ended up going to therapy and working through it and uh, – Everything's great now, but you can't really explain unless you're in the throes of that. It, it, people don't understand it. And it's incredibly you start having these ruminating thoughts that just you can't control. And they may be about something benign, 
But if you can't get your mind to stop looping on these thoughts, it's just miserable. Um, and, it, you know, you really do have to work through it and find a, find kind of the root cause of it and sort of minimize it somehow. And that's a, that is a process and it takes a little bit of work for sure. Um, well, it is a process. And I, you know, in my experience, I'm not even sure that I knew it was going on a lot of the times or sure. that it wasn't normal. And now I'm starting to realize, and I'm starting to work on it some on my own and, and probably going to have to do something different to help that in the future. And I don't mean drinking or something like that, but, um, you, you know, I have a bad tendency right now. If I have a couple of days off in a row and I really don't have anything to do except whatever I want to do, which is normally play golf and, and whatever is all day long. I'm in a hurry. Right. And I have to remind myself, what am I in a hurry for? I'm playing golf. I don't have anything to do. I can do whatever I want to do. Quit being in a hurry. And I see that, though, I see that at the golf course in all different kinds of groups. And you can see it in the ages of groups as these guys age out and they're retired and they age out of the noon group. And now they're playing at eight in the morning and eventually they're playing at seven in the morning and they're pissed off if anybody's in front of them. And they can't play in two and a half hours and they're retired and they have nothing to do. Yeah, but they have right. got to be they have got to have their 18 holes done by 920 and back in whatever they are doing. Or, or it drives them nuts. And it's funny yeah. to watch that. It's it's funny to watch that and people, you know, like, you know, these guys are, I, I know as you get older, maybe you get up earlier and whatever, but now there's no way. And then if we have a tournament and I tell them, well, you can't play at seven, but we have plenty of times at 12, they won't play. They can't do right. it. It drives them nuts. It's, they have got to play at seven and they got to be done at nine nineteen, or they're not doing it. You know, I think on some level, yeah, that's your brain working too hard. And really, quite frankly, I mean, we should all be a little more Buddhist. Like, you take things as they come. There is no, there is nothing to rush for, really, ultimately. Um, but it's, you know, we're all a little bit like Rain Man. When, once we start deviating from our routine, it feels wrong. And that provokes anxiety. So it's easier to, I play golf at 740 and then I go to Hardy's and eat a biscuit. You know, and if it's if something gets skewed from that, then you start becoming uncomfortable. Um, I'm sure there is an evolutionary biological um, component to that. You know, most things we have a really easy life compared to our ancestors. And so we still get anxious to protect ourselves from not being eaten by a bear. Um, Instead, we're just anxious because golf's taking too long. Uh, Great. Now it's big of a threat. Now I'm going to be worried all day on the course about getting eaten by a bear. Thanks, Corey. <laughs> Just add to my list of worries. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we need to talk about uh, the basketball tournament just a little bit. Yeah. Be it that Duke and North Carolina are playing each other in the final four. That Coach K has lost his last two games in North Carolina, including his last regular, uh, the, their last regular season appearance. Um. And now this could go both ways. They have a chance. The players have a chance to redeem themselves for their coach and beat North Carolina. But it's it will be a very weird loss for Coach K to be his last game. If North Carolina beats them in the Final Four and that's his last game as a college coach, that is a weird way to go out after a after an amazing career. Yeah, you're right. 
It puts a lot of pressure on Duke, although I feel like the Duke players have a do-over because they felt very bad about losing his last game in North Carolina seemingly a few a month ago. Yeah. So yeah, very inter- be- one of the most interesting Final Four matches ups that I can ever remember. Yeah. I, you know, do you think a guy – I mean, Coach Krzyzewski is clearly the, the greatest college basketball coach in history. But at what point does it become you're an amazing coach or an amazing recruiter? Because he's pretty much been able to land the players he's wanted for 25 years. Um, and you have to have those players to win. I mean, oh, I think you, you, no, no doubt about it. But you, we, we see plenty of programs that have a lot of good good players that, that don't have the success that Duke's had. So yeah, I mean, you're right. It's when, off the charts. When, when you look at some of the programs that have, that have had a bunch of really good players in the NBA, Alabama being one of them over the years. Yeah. And, and I don't think they've ever made it past the Sweet 16. or So, yeah, no, there's something to be said for his coaching as well. Yeah. For sure. For um, sure. It would just be a weird way to end your career, getting beat by your rival the last three times you've played them, including in your Final Four. Yeah. So I w- we had a different opinion on Indiana's basketball season this year, but I was really excited um, for the first time in a long time. Love our new coach, Mike Woodson. And we were we met, had some interesting ups and downs this year, and uh, I think it was a big step forward in a lot of ways. And kind of dealing with some of the same, you know, you take over from an old coach, there's some systematic things in place that are probably going to take a few years to kind of uh, sort through. Um, but, man, we went on a – we were getting killed in the first round of the Big Ten tournament by Michigan, and we had this – we were down 17 with 11 minutes to go, and we came back and basically just annihilated them the rest of the game. Um, and won, and then we beat Illinois, uh, and then we lost to – uh, Iowa, and but that got us into the NCAA tournament. We had to go to the playing game to even get in the first round, and we won that. Um, and we had a lot of momentum, and the team was looking pretty good. And then we got absolutely drilled in the round of sixty-four by a very good St. Mary's team. Um, but I think uh, we're heading in the right direction. I love the new coach, um, but it's hard to be a fan because you're almost like the, a member of a cult you just hope like i want to believe so badly that this is going to go well that any decision mike woodson makes i'm just like this uh, yes i hope this works and i guess we'll see if it does well i you you'd have to think all in all this season was a win i mean we made an ncaa tournament first time in a while um for any coach to make an ncaa tournament his first year especially when the program hasn't been doing well is you know that that's where indiana needs to be a bad year needs to be us making it to the tournament right and that hasn't been a good year has been us making it to the tournament so right. if you know you, you gotta you know year three if, if we're really good next year that's great uh it, you know you gotta give him first two years for sure and let's see what happens in year three um if he continues to keep making the tournament making progress i think it's a, a very good start so uh, I just wasn't ready to get on board yet because I don't want my hopes and dreams crushed once more by Indiana basketball. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways we've talked about this in regards to conductors in my business, but you can rule through fear, uh, which is effective, but not enjoyable. You can be a player's coach that's so permissive that people don't get their work done, but the best 
kind of motivator is someone that you want to play well for because you don't want to disappoint them. And he seems like that kind of guy, you know? I agree. And I hope that's the case. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I hope hopefully next year I want to get on board and, and be all in for better or for worse. I don't have too many more years left in me anyway, so I've got to go full in at this point. Right. I think you should keep watching. I mean, I think you, uh, you know, I think you have many more months left in you for sure. <laughs> yes. Many more months. I like the way you put that. So let's talk just briefly. We're running out of time here. Let's talk about this LIV invitational series a little bit, this Greg Norman thing, just real quick. I know we've been sure. talking about this a lot, but so apparently this invitations have gone out for this tournament in June. And apparently Greg Norman has sent out 248 invitations for a 48 man team, a 48 man field. So very selective. Are, are you, are you expecting a big rejection <laughs> rate there, Greg? Yeah. Um, the, the whole thing's still weird to me. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens out of this, if anything. I don't think the tour's going to put up with it at all. I, I think they're going to hammer it down. If it gets to that point, I, I think they're going to hammer them pretty good. Yeah. Any players that try to jump ship to it, I just, um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a wait and see thing. I, I really, I really can't see this thing evolving into anything. If, for what their business model is, I just don't think they're going to get the names. I, I mean, I just, so. I don't, you know, I don't know who I, I keep picking on Lee Westwood and Lee Westwood. If you're listening, I'm, I'm not picking on you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm your age too. So I'm just using that, but just, I don't know. I, I, I'm who, I, I don't know who's turning off the tour event to watch Lee Westwood. No one, you know, um, and, and by the way, congratulations, Scotty Scheffler. He won the match play this week, became number one player in the world. Um, he's won three of his last five events. If we did a man on the street interviews and asked people who Scotty Scheffler was and maybe threw out some fake careers or pick one, I bet most of them wouldn't have any idea who we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And again, no offense to Scotty Scheffler. That's great. And, and he may be a household name at some point, but, um, there's certain things that move the needle in professional sports and there's certain things that don't. And as you said before, what other sports league has rose up in the modern era to contest any of the major sports leagues? Well, yeah, not only that, but a company like the PJ tour, which has been going for a long, long time already has all, has built organically the natural infrastructure that it takes to put on, a giant golf tournament. And so I'm even thinking like who's broadcasting it, you know, do they already have partnerships to televise it? And if so, who's the team broadcasting it? Who's the support staff? Who's producing it? Who's, you know, the rules officials, um, all the stuff that's already tied into the PGA tour, you know, the PGA tour has a whole office full of employees and departments dealing with all these details, food service, um, you know, so did you hear there, there was a story this week or this weekend about a race car race that was going on in Saudi Arabia or finance no, through Saudis. Did you hear this? No. So there was a terrorist attack nearby this race and some of the drivers were trying, were going to pull out of the race <laughs> and then none of the drivers pulled out of the race because they were coerced to staying in the race mysteriously by 
the said promoters of this race, which was Saudi money. Right. And this brought up another point. How much freedom of choice are you actually going to have if you get in bed with these folks? Right. Good point. Um, you know, it's just the whole thing. As Phil said, they're scary MFers. Um, I'm not sure that that's what you want as your boss. And I don't think you're going to be able to look at them and say, but I'm an independent contractor. Yeah, right. you're going to be an independent contractor with no hands going forward if you don't play in this event. Right. Um, it, the whole thing just is ludicrous. And on a personal note, Greg Norman, you are dead to me and I'm going to go cry because <laughs> I was your biggest fan growing up. You think he's listening? He is probably listening right now, taking notes. Seems unlikely. So he's uh, he's probably already sifted through his uh, invitation um, um, responses this morning, and that went fairly quickly. So now he's listening to the uh, Golf Drinking and Life podcast. <laughs> right. So anyway, good luck, Greg. Um, Corey, I feel like we're running out of time today for Opera Story. Do you have anything quick? It's we need to do this whole episode on opera for you coming up. It's possible that I, I've said this before, but as a tribute to the aforementioned Mark Flint, who was the conductor at Augusta Opera, I love to tell this story. He was a he was a hilarious guy, but in a very understated way, and he had a sort of a gentleman's southern drawl. And uh, we were pl- doing La Boheme, which is a romantic Italian opera in Augusta, Georgia. And so no offense to the symphony there, but it's, it's not the easiest piece. And... I'm standing downstage and he's in the pit conducting the orchestra and one of the violinists sort of puts her violin down and says, where are we? And as he's continuing to conduct, he turns and says, we're in hell. And then just continued conducting. So uh, rest in peace, Mark Flint. You were a charmer. I like it. He sounds right up my alley. Yeah, exactly. So, Exciting couple weeks coming up here. Like I said, we've got the final four this weekend, the championship game Monday night. Um, we've got the masters next week. So the golf channel will be live from Augusta starting Monday all week. I love watching that stuff. Um, if you can get tickets to Augusta, don't pass up that opportunity. If you have any chance of going to Augusta, drop whatever you're doing and go. It is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And uh, you will not be disappointed, I guarantee you. I look forward to our show next week where we'll be again previewing Augusta because it will come out on the Thursday of Augusta. And then I'm looking forward to our show the week after as we'll be able to review Augusta. All about Augusta. All the time. Very exciting. We're going to change the name of the podcast to Augusta Drinking in Life. (laughs) Nice. Um, All right, listeners, don't forget. You can follow me on Twitter at Colin McKern. Please email the show, golfdrinkinglife at gmail.com. Corey, anything else to add? That's it. Good to talk to you. All right, man. Have a good week. Listeners, everybody, we'll see you guys next Thursday. Thank you. See y'all. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. <laughs>